Hi guys, good to see you. This is a, a talk where you really need to see the screen, so if you can't, you might want to get to a place where you can. Plenty of room in here, uh, and up on the stage, in fact. Uh, I might just uh, pray. Father, I just ask you to open your word to us. May we understand and give us everything we need to continue on, to be your people, to understand what you're calling us to, to understand Paul and his mission and our mission and all the glorious things that you did through him and through us. And we pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, uh, hi guys. We're doing our, we're continuing our, our series of biblical literacy and we're now in the New Testament. So we've done what is the good news and we're We've also done a series on how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. And now I want to look at the Apostle Paul. Cool. Uh, Paul, he's the main guy who took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. He did four missionary journeys. You can see them diagrammed on that slide. And planted churches from Jerusalem to Spain. Uh, I've called this series Travelling with Paul, looking at Paul's missionary journeys and all the letters that he writes along the way. We're doing it over six weeks. We're looking from Acts 18 to 28, and we're looking at virtually all of Paul's letters. So uh, how ambitious is that? But I'm, I'm going to try in six weeks to cover all that material over a third of the New Testament, as well as Acts 18 to 28. Yeah, so I hope this is, I hope this is great. I hope it's a fresh way to understand Paul, his mission, and um, his letters. And we all have ideas about Paul. Was he tall? Was he short? Uh, did he have a, was he a hunchback? Tradition says he was a hunchback. Is that right? Was he handsome? Was he... What, what, who was he? <laughs> Could he swim? Uh, all these questions I'm sure are on your heart and mind. Probably not. Uh, but what kind of person is Paul and why did he write the letters, what was, was, what was the occasion of those letters and what was going on in the cities he was preaching in and what were his struggles, what were his motivations, what did he face. Um, so we're looking at all of that and I'm pretty confident that most if not all of this material you perhaps will not be familiar with. How's that? So I hope this will be 75% new to you guys who tell me afterwards. No, Dave, I knew all of that. Uh, but I'm hoping this will be a really fresh and great way to look at the bulk of uh, the, a third of the New Testament. Well, we're going to skip uh, the first part of his journeys because I just didn't have enough weeks. And we're going to start in Acts 18, as we just read, and starting with Paul arriving in Corinth. It's 51 AD. I bought this at Blacksland News Agents. It's absolutely amazingly good for this series. If you want to find out about the world that this is all happening in, Blacksland News Agency. <laughs> so, are you ready? Great slide. Great slide. Look at that slide. <laughs> I, don't, I won't tell you how many hours I took finding these slides and setting this up. Anyway. Uh, Corinth is still an exciting place to visit. It's one of the best preserved archaeological sites in Greece, partly because the new city is built not on top of the old city. 
Uh, so, so it's still preserved and you can walk in on the ancient street into ancient Corinth even today. And coming in from the northeast uh, up the main centre into the ancient town, you can see where the tribunal was, where the Roman governor took his seat to judge cases, including Paul's case. And you can walk around, you can see the temples, and you can look up on the hill to see the Corinthian Acropolis with its temple of, of Aphrodite right up, very high up above the city. And you can look down to the sea, you can see up in the top there, the port of Corinth, of ancient Corinth. Corinth. And Corinth was famous in the ancient world because as a port city, anything and everything happened in Corinth. And they probably used to say, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And what they meant was, everything happens in Corinth. Corinth is situated on the Greek isthmus between Athens and Sparta. Athens and Sparta were the most famous cities from 500 years before Paul. But they're joined by a narrow neck there, um, of land and Corinth is on the edge of that narrow neck. Various Roman emperors tried to drive a canal through the uh, isthmus uh, so ships didn't have to go all the way around. Here it is today, you can see the canal. So they finally, in modern times, completed the canal. I think Herod gave a really good go at it. Herod King, um, sorry, Nero, Emperor Nero had a really good go at it but just couldn't do it. But now there it is, you can go right through there. I think they tried to drag ships across it for one period, but uh, now you can go right through. But it's still pretty narrow and has slips, and so it's not perfect. Paul walked from Athens up the top. I'm oh, sorry, am I orientated the right way? No, from the bottom. Paul walked from Athens in the bottom corner around uh, up into Corinth. I've got to move. Modern Corinth, ancient Corinth. All right. Um, and Athens was the centre of the Greek world where he was, uh, but now he coming, he's coming into Corinth, which is incredibly busy. It's an incredibly vibrant port city. Absolutely amazing place. And so he just walks in there by himself, it took about three or four days to walk down from Athens and here he is. All right, now God is good. Straight away, Paul meets a Jewish couple who were already followers of Jesus. We can go to that next slide. Who'd come from Rome to Corinth because Claudius the emperor at the time had issued an edict banning the Jews from Rome and this is probably because Christianity had reached Rome there were riots in the synagogues and so Claudius um, exiled the Jews from Rome. And so Priscilla and Aquila, as Jews from Rome, have now turned up in Corinth and are living there. And Paul stays with them and is able to work with them because they're tent makers. So the first people he kind of meets in Corinth, they're Christians already. Wow! And not only that, they're tent makers and Paul is a tent maker and so he's able to have work. And he lives with them. How good is God? Absolutely extraordinary. Walking into this massive city and here these guys are. And Priscilla and Aquila become friends of Paul, helping him. And it's amazing how many, 
helpers Paul has. And he mentions about 80 people in all of his letters. People who are dear to him, he calls them his beloved. But he's got this big, vast network of people across the world who are coming and going, who are going on errands, who are taking the gospel elsewhere, then reporting back to Paul, who are, in the case of Priscilla and Aquila, giving him lodging, giving him work. Absolutely amazing. 80 people. And so mission is done as a team effort. And sometimes we think Paul is a superhero and sometimes we don't realise how many people he was relying on and who were helping him. He calls them his co-workers. You might have noticed that in the reading in 1 Thessalonians when he referred to Timothy as his co-worker and brother. And they're everywhere. And Priscilla and Aquila are classic helpers of Paul. And we need each other. And all, just about every great ministry that has ever happened in the world is the ministry of a network of friends who love each other and work together for the gospel. And that's why we're trying to be in gospel communities, working together, loving each other, being on mission, networking together. Uh, and it was so important that Paul, as a leader, gave credit. This is the kind of guy Paul is. He gave credit to all of these people. He praised them. He was so excited at every turn. It's absolutely extraordinary, Paul's affection for these people. His heart bleeds for them. You heard that in the, the reading to the Thessalonians. He absolutely loved these people. They loved Paul. Paul is not some terrible person. Paul is a relational person par excellence. He loves people, works with people, depends on people. And some of the most important people in Paul's lives become Priscilla and Aquila. They'll travel with Paul from Corinth later on to Ephesus. They are just absolutely stars in Paul's galaxy. Another two people come to Corinth while Paul is there. Their names are Timothy and Silas. Timothy was very close to Paul and often with Paul. He's been stereotyped as a young student of Paul and sort of a disciple of Paul. But if we pay attention, Paul wrote six letters with Timothy. And we diminish Timothy if we say Paul really wrote the letters and just included Timothy in the authorship because Paul was being nice. No, I don't believe that. Timothy became a peer of Paul, a kind of an associate apostle that Paul discussed theology with constantly and discussed what he would say to the Romans, to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians. Paul relied on Timothy absolutely Timothy was this incredibly close, the closest friend that Paul had. It's an absolutely crucial relationship. And two of Paul's letters are to Timothy. So eight of Paul's letters involve Timothy. Amazing. And we'll see Timothy right through this next six weeks. Uh, there with Paul, at his side, helping him. Absolutely extraordinary, that relationship. So crucial that we have key relationships with people in the mission that God has called us to, that we lean on, that we love dearly. And Timothy was the most close to Paul as far as I can see. And a few weeks before Paul had arrived in Corinth, Paul had been up in northern Greece in Thessal Thessaloniki or Thessalonica as it was known and planted a church there. And then Timothy had joined Paul in Athens when Paul came down from Thessalonica to Athens. 
And Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians because they were undergoing persecution. So as we heard in the letter that uh, Glenn read, Paul then sent Timothy up to Thessalonica to check on them, see how they were going. And now finally, Timothy has come back to Paul, who is now in Corinth, with good news from the Thessalonians. And, And Timothy arrives in Corinth with Silas. Now, Silas, we know, was another companion of Paul, just for good company. He's the kind of guy you want to travel with. He's absolutely wonderful to be with. And he was with Paul on many trips. Up in Philippi, he was with Paul, uh, which is near Thessalonica. And he's just this guy that Paul loved hanging out with. And sometimes that's our role. We're just with people because they love being with us and we travel with them, we help them, just by being wonderful company in the journey. Okay, so Paul lived in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. He got this good news from the Thessalonians as uh, Timothy and Silas came down from Thessalonica to Corinth. And Timothy says, yep, they're holding fast. They haven't let go of the faith despite the persecution. They miss you badly, Paul. They love you, Paul. And they're praying for you, Paul, and they'd love to hear that you're praying for them. And so Paul is so encouraged to hear this news. He was so worried about them. And Timothy comes with this news. And so then Paul has to write this quick letter. So in Corinth, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians. And we'll look at that in a minute. But here this gives us an insight into Paul, his vulnerability, what it was like to be Paul. It's only been a few weeks since he was in Thessalonica and he was run out of town there. And the letter Paul sends back to the Thessalonians shows how he was feeling when he... Can we... uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Shows how he was feeling when he um, came into Corinth. And this feeling of Paul when he arrived in Corinth is backed up by his first letter that he later writes to the Corinthians where he says, When I came to you, Corinthians, it was in weakness and in fear and trembling. And and that has powerful biblical overtones. Fear and trembling is what happens when a vision from God is happening and you feel like you're going to be squashed flat and smashed to smithereens. Fear and trembling before God. And Paul says, that's how I felt coming into Corinth. And after my experiences all around Philippi and Thessalonica, thrown in jail, beaten up, and then in Athens I was hauled before the greatest court in the land. And I, when I came into Corinth, I just, I just wanted to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That was my focus. I just wanted to tell you the gospel. But I knew that the cross of Jesus Christ is folly to Greeks, a scandal to Jews. He knew they would hate it. He knew there'd be riots, there'd be trouble. And he's feeling awful. And you can just sense the sense of Paul, his vulnerability, feeling that the Thessalonians are under persecution sharing their weakness and their utter need for God in the situation as he comes into Corinth, bringing 
the message of Christ crucified, which he knows will look foolish to the Greeks and cause a scandal to the Jews. And he's trembling. He's afraid as he comes into Corinth. He's overwhelmed with the enormity of all that God has called him to do. And so when Paul hears Timothy's news from the Thessalonians, he's so relieved. He's so encouraged because they're holding firm in spite of persecution. And so Paul, he's so moved, he's just got to get that letter back to the Thessalonians and he writes it immediately. And he says in his letter to the Thessalonians, despite your persecution, your faith is this incredible display of the power of Jesus Christ in this world. Christ crucified has been seen in your lives and all through northern Greece. It's radiated out that your faith is so strong and that you have turned from idols to serve the living and true God and that is the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And Paul is absolutely encouraged to see the reality that Jesus' death and his cross and the message about that is powerful. Churches are surviving. The work is continuing despite everything that is going wrong for Paul. And Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is famous for many reasons, but one of them is just this outpouring of relief and affection. He says, we were snatched away for you for a short time in person, though not in heart. And we longed eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. And he says, as we look ahead to the final coming of Jesus, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting? Don't you see? It's you. You are our joy. You are our glory. And he's just so overjoyed that they have stayed loyal to Jesus. And he couldn't um, take credit for that himself. He was only in Thessalonica such a short time. It was the powerful gospel itself and the spirit. And the fact that they're now thriving in Thessalonica despite suffering means God is indeed at work in the world. Paul is so encouraged. So as we think of Paul in Corinth, we need to realise he writes this letter to the Thessalonians. And in Thessalonians, he says three basic messages. He reminds them how dear they are to him and to God. He calls them to love one another as brothers and sisters. And he clears up a misunderstanding about the second coming of Jesus. I only have time to look at that middle one, calling us to love one another as brothers and sisters. It's amazing that Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers and sisters 12 times in this short letter. 12 times. Why did he do this? Well, the most common term in the New Testament for the church is not the word church. The most common term that describes the relationship between believers in Jesus Christ is brothers and sisters. Paul uses that term 270 times. That's a hundred times more than the next term that he most uses. Absolutely extraordinary. And that term and concept dominates his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul wants them to know that we are brothers and sisters. 
and he wants them to love one another. That's what he really wants to get across to them. His own love for them and he wants them to realise who they are. And this is interesting given the context of ancient Greece. The idea of friendship was so huge in ancient Greek culture and Thessalonica is in ancient Greece. And philosophers Aristotle, Plutarch and Cicero wrote a lot about friendship. And yet Paul doesn't use the word friends. He calls them brothers and sisters because friendship is voluntary and outside of the household. But Paul says the relationship of believers in Jesus is a relationship that you find inside the household, in a family, a relationship of siblings. And we should be friends of one another, but being brothers and sisters is far more than friendship. And I want to look at brothers and sisters, and I have nine points here, quickly, just to freshen up our, and to really understand the impact of Paul saying this to these Greeks, their culture, how they understood things. Well, in the ancient Greek culture, they understood that unlike friendship, we don't choose our brothers and sisters, and of course we still understand that today which means that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. We didn't choose that. We just are (laughs) because we believe in Jesus. Secondly, brothers and sisters have a deeper, more intimate relationship than friends. Friends are, in a sense, outside the house. Brothers and sisters are in the house. And even when brothers and sisters are outside of the house, they know they have an in-the-house type of relationship. And whereas if a friend does something stupid, you can ignore them for five years until you sort of bump into them. (laughs) If it's a brother and sister, you're going to see them that night at dinner at home because you live together. Much more primary relationship. Thirdly, being brothers and sisters puts a boundary around us and gives us a special identity together. Those who are in Jesus are our brothers and sisters And those who are outside of Jesus are not our brothers and sisters. There's a boundary there. They're not in a spiritual sense our brothers and sisters. Which means that our relationship one with another is more primary than all other relationships. This is what Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand. The relationships you have with each other, that's your primary family in the world now. It's hard for us to take this seriously in the modern world. These days, Christians do tend to retreat to their own families and occasionally do something with the corporate church. But really, it's their own families that they see as the most important set of relationships they have in their life. But Paul is saying that's not actually the case. There's a special identity that we have in Christ which is deeper And we will be spending eternity with each other. We are brothers and sisters. And so often Christians don't view the relationship they have with others in Christ as the centre of their lives. So church becomes just an element in your life rather than the centre of your life. And it seems to me that misses this fundamental thing that Paul is saying. He's calling you brothers and sisters with other Christians. That means that's the centre of your life. This is your deeper family, your spiritual family. 
Fourthly, the natural place for brothers and sisters is the home. And church gatherings were in the home in the first century and, of course, the Thessalonians met in homes. This is so appropriate because homes are the brother-sister space. And I think the fact that they met in a home really helped them understand, yes, we are brothers and sisters. This is real. And so I think we need to be in each other's homes. I just think that's the natural place for brothers and sisters. That's the kind of relationship we have. Fifthly, brothers and sisters have discord and conflict and yet there's more of a capacity to forgive and be lenient with our brothers and sisters than our friends, or there should be. And it's not just that brothers and sisters learn to get along. Brothers and sisters have a natural desire to be on one another's side, to make allowances for each other and to see one another in the best possible light because we're brothers and sisters. Sixthly, brothers and sisters work together and work out systems of working together. Plutarch says that siblings, even more than friends, um, are to work in harmony and cooperation. Like doing things in the kitchen together and, you know, you're all working there cooking a meal and you have to do this dance around each other and you learn how to move so that you don't knock each other and spill it all everywhere. And brothers and sisters are people who've worked all those rhythms and ways of living together out so that they can be productive. Harmony and cooperation. Uh, Seventhly, brothers and sisters are more committed to helping one another grow than friends are, Plutarch says. And it's brothers and sisters that more help one another on in life to grow and develop than friends, especially elder siblings helping younger siblings. And siblings can be frank with each other in a way that friends can't be, right? (laughs) Siblings are also more pastorally available because we're living together or in close proximity. Uh, And so that's the way it's to be for us as the church. We're pastorally available to one another because we're living in close enough proximity so that we can encourage and admonish one another. Eighthly, in the ancient world, there was an order and hierarchy, so the older male was in, in more authority than the rest of the siblings. And Jesus really, in our family, is the elder brother, says Hebrews and Romans 9. And we are only his brothers and sisters because of what he's done for us. <laughs> so he has the authority in our, among our, our family. And we're all equals, but we all have different functions and places in the family. But typically, even though we have different functions and fa- uh, places, siblings talk to each other and discuss things and make decisions together. I'm just re- this is just the ancient understanding of uh, siblinghood versus friendship. And then <coughs> love is fundamental to sibling life, ninthly. And the type of love Paul names here is agape. He says, your love for one another must abound more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4.10. That doesn't mean we should have more and more affection for one another. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, agape love is self-giving love, looking out for each other, serving each other, sacrificially, caring for one another like family. And Paul says, do that more and more. 4 verse 9, now about your love for all the brothers, I don't really need... Brothers and sisters, sorry, I don't really need to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to show love and care for one another. Indeed, you are doing this for all the brothers and sisters in the whole of Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to make this an even more prominent part of your lives. 
So Paul is starting to teach the Thessalonians about this new life in Jesus. This life that is now possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. A new order is dawning where people come into the family of God and become brothers and sisters together where love is the central thing in their lives. Agape love. This is what Paul wants them to know. This could well have been his first letter. I think probably Galatians was. But some people think 1 Thessalonians is his first letter. And what does he say? He says, guys, this church thing is about we're brothers and sisters and we're growing in love for one another. That's absolutely foundational for Paul. I want you to know this, guys. And I want you to grow in love for each other more and more. And this means that our relationship together as brothers and sisters is deeper, more primary, more working together, more in each other's homes, more committed to helping each other grow, more forgiving and forbearing and more central to our lives than friendship. And it's the kind of life you can't have with people on a Sunday morning at a gathering or even in a Bible study group on a weeknight. It's a relationship where we're pastorally available to one another, where these relationships we have with one another are central to our lives, where we are in each other's homes and lives and where we're committed to each other's growth and where we're working together on mission and caring for one another. This is the essence of what it means to be the church. And, of course, we're trying to do this in our church through our gospel communities, but also the way we do the gathering. So that's the message Paul has for the Thessalonians. Pretty cool. It's very brief. He just gets it off as quickly as he can to encourage them. Okay, then he stays in Corinth 18 months, teaching in the synagogue, and it says, energetically bearing forthright witness that Jesus is the Messiah. I love that. He took it to them and they kicked him out and so he goes across the street to the house of Titicus Justice where he continues teaching. Many believe and are baptised and a church is planted in Corinth. And the members of the synagogue, guess what, didn't believe, who didn't believe in Jesus, bring a charge against Paul and try to make Christianity illegal. But Gallio, the proconsul of Archaea, rules in Paul's favour. So in southern Greece, Christians are protected. (laughs) But as we travel in the journey in other regions, often Christianity is made illegal. But here, it's okay to be a Christian. Hallelujah. Well, next time we'll see Paul in Ephesus.